0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I'm joined by Samantha Kraling, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Washington in the Prue Lab. She joined us to discuss her new bioscience article, So Covert It's Overt, Wildlife Coloration in the City. We had a great chat and it spanned topics ranging from the industrial revolution to human wildlife conflict, hunting, evolution, and camouflage, and a lot more. So with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. All right. Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. So we're going to be talking today about evolution in the urban environment and how it affects, um, you know, the coloration and appearance of of various species. But I wanted to talk first just a little bit about evolution itself. Um, You know, I think oftentimes there's a tendency to think of it as a settled manner. These are things that happened over, you know, millions of years, Um, but there's actually quite a lot that's going on in the here and now.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I, I do think there's definitely that tendency to kind of think of evolution as something that happened in the past and now we're left with all these species and they're remaining unchanged, this is how they are. But in reality, that's not quite what's happening and we're seeing that evolution can actually happen on a lot quicker timescales than we maybe previously have thought.
0: Okay. And we're talking today specifically about, you know, urban environments. And I'm wondering, you know, what are the sort of just generally speaking drivers and, you know, things that are kind of pushing selection in those types of environments. I think we are, you know, we're all very familiar with, you know, what happens in a, what would be considered a wild landscape, but what are sort of the general features of an urban environment in terms of evolution? It's not something that I'd thought about much previously.
1: Yeah, so I mean the same evolutionary kind of um, mechanisms that are available in non-urban areas are available in urban areas, right? You have your, your adaptive selection, your non-adaptive selection, things like genetic drift. Um, so all those are at play in urban areas, but the rates at which some of these things happen might be slightly different. And so uh, in urban areas, we tend to have a lot more fragmentation in the landscape. Uh, we have a lot more chemicals and, and mutagens in the landscape that could potentially be affecting mutation rates. Um, kind of that higher level of fragmentation might mean that we'll have higher levels of genetic drift in these kind of smaller populations sometimes. Um, and then we just have a lot of different novel stimuli that you're not finding in these non-urban environments and a lot of anthropogenic influences that are a lot stronger. So you can think of anything from, you know, human driven mortality through vehicle collisions that are happening probably at slightly higher rates in more urbanized regions than in non-urban regions or anything like that. So. Lots of different selections that are coming from people and kind of the environment we've built
0: up. Okay, and and I guess now the big question, just to get us started, would be, you know, what are we typically seeing, you know, among species in terms of their adaptations? You know, what what sorts of things are are going on?
1: So I think this is really a, a kind of a new new field right now. Um and so we don't know a ton. There are actually like very few uh conclusively driven studies that have found adaptive evolution happening in cities. There's a handful, I can't remember quite how many, but just a handful. Um, and so we know a couple things. So Shane Campbell Staten has a bunch of great work on annuls and how kind of thermal tolerance changes in urban areas. Um, there's some great papers on of course the the black peppered moths that change color due to the, to uh the Industrial Revolution, that's kind of what I would think of as the first the first case of urban evolution, kind of us realizing it's happening.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the Black Peppered Moth for a second. Um, for those who might not be familiar with that example, this is a case in which, you know, the Industrial Revolution what it unleashes, you know, great amounts of pollution and sort of, you know, changes the appearance of the landscape and they have to adapt?
1: Yeah, so so with the onset of the Industrial Revolution, we had these kind of light barked trees that these pepper moths were on, and at the time, before the Industrial Revolution, these, these moths were largely light in color, so they blended into these trees, but post-Industrial Revolution, we have a bunch of soot and chemicals in the air, it darkens the bark of these trees, and therefore predators were able to see these lightly colored moths really easily against um, that dark background. Um, and so it ended up selecting for these darker colored moths and those ended up proliferating throughout this, that environment.
0: Okay, and that had to have happened pretty rapidly, right? I mean, the industrial revolution was not all that long ago.
1: Yeah, I think I think Kettle World's, uh experiments on this was in the 1950s or something like that. So really not that long ago at all.
0: Okay. And I'm wondering now, um, you know, about in the article specifically, uh, we're mostly talking about, you know, coloration of wildlife and how that can change. And, you know, it, I, I think it was interesting to me that it was in ways that I might not have expected um, that you see more, not necessarily outlier coloration variations, but, um, you know, things that are perhaps different from the norm. What what sorts of trends are there?
1: So the, the thing about this is we actually really haven't studied it much at all. Um, so there is a, a recent review that came out in 2021 that found, I think, about 60 different papers that had, you know, somewhat touched this idea of change in coloration across an urbanization gradient. But it was really only on three different species. So it was on, I think, great tits, um, the the pepper moths, and I wanna say uh rock doves, that's what it was. Um and so we have some knowledge about these very few species, but there's not really enough knowledge to to give these fast trends, which is kind of my reason for writing this paper and kind of hoping that people pay attention to this because coloration is so important on like an ecological standpoint um, for animal communication and thermal regulation and just kind of avoidance of predator and prey But also from like a humor perspective, there's kind of some interesting things going on in how we perceive animals that are different, differently colored than other individuals in that population.
0: Yeah. And I want to jump into that a little later on. I thought the examples about, you know, uh, not shooting leucistic deer, uh, I thought that was a really interesting example. But, you know, one of the things I was interested in was the roadkill phenomenon with uh, squirrels in particular. You know, how does that come into play in terms of coloration?
1: Yeah, and so that that was a, a paper that came out in twenty twenty two, I believe. But um they were looking at this these eastern gray squirrels and, and noticed that there was kind of a, a melanistic climb around these these northern latitudes in the, the United States. Um and they found that they were they're more prevalent in in urban areas. And the hypothesis at the time was kind of that um people were able to visually see these these darker squirrels against kind of that the pavement color and were able to avoid hitting them more often than gray squirrels that would blend in a little bit more. So their thought was that perhaps that was driving uh, this increase in, in melanism across these urban areas.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I mean, you know, I I grew up in northern Virginia. And I think, you know, the time I was growing up a very long time ago, um, was just about the time that they'd crossed the Potomac River and had kind of established themselves in those sorts of urban areas. So there's, there's cases in which, you know, actual human ability to see preference and stuff like that is actually driving evolution or maybe.
1: Yeah, definitely. Potentially, I think there, there might be a follow up to that paper coming out. I think I saw a preprint where it might be driven by by rural clients as well. So uh, I think we'll have to stay tuned on that exact example to see exactly what uh, people come up with. But I do think that kind of humans being able to visually see these different animals could potentially lead to preferential treatment if they think they're cool. Or, you know, if you're driving a car and you can see an animal, you're probably less likely to hit it than an animal that you're not really able to to actually visualize.
0: Yeah, that would definitely help. Um, I'm wondering about what kinds of environments we're talking about when we say, you know, an urban landscape. Um, Obviously, there's a large gradient, and there's a lot of variation from place to place. So just broadly speaking, what types of places are we talking about uh, in this article in particular?
1: That's a great question. So I think it's, I mean, so complicated. We don't really have that great of a definition of urban, if you ask me. And depending on who you ask, the, the definition changes. Um, and so when I was writing this paper, I was really just thinking of urbanization as kind of a a concept. What changes between any, let's say, more or less untouched landscape and even like a suburban landscape, right? You're going to have Higher amounts of cars, you're going to have higher amounts of people and building distance density, this more impervious surface. We know that kind of predatory regimes often change and you get more meso predators than apex predators. So kind of regardless of what level of urbanization we're talking about, I think some of these things could come into play. They might be at various strengths and whatnot, but um, I think I'll use my, my friend, Liz Carlin. Uh, she has a great analogy on, on different cities, but um, she kind of refers to them as McDonald's. So depending on, you know, all cities you can think of as kind of these McDonald's, right? They all have a menu that people enjoy, but depending on what country you're in, that menu is going to change. So we have kind of this idea of urbanization, but within individual cities, we have different menus, right? The, the different mechanisms and different drivers in those cities vary a little bit.
0: Let's talk about Coati's a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned them before we started recording um, and that they were sort of in some sense an inspiration for some of this work. Yeah. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and, and what sorts of uh, you know, phenomena are at play?
1: Yeah, and so this, this whole paper kind of came about when I was, I think 19 and was fortunate enough to take a trip down to um, down to Mexico in the um, Playa del Carmen region. And I remember going to this golf course with my dad, which I hate golf, but there's always animals so I'm, I'm at least interested in golf courses in that way um but I remember looking out and seeing all these coatates and you know most of them were kind of like this normal color kind of that like light brown color that we expect them to be and then there was a handful that were kind of this bright white color um and my first thought was well that's weird like why haven't those been eaten by something yet and then I realized that we're kind of in this human dominated uh system predators probably don't exist there as much anymore and that kind of Probably allowed the proliferation of these these different color morphs in these regions um, and that kind of sparked the entire this entire paper really and, and then I funneled down into somehow thirteen hypotheses on this
0: <laughs> right and we we definitely don't have to go through all of them, but uh, you know maybe we can talk about a, a, a couple of them so you know I, one thing you mentioned earlier um, that we didn't chat about yet is you know the potential that there are mutagenic chemicals and and stuff like that in the urban environment you know what is what does that do and how does that sort of affect evolutionary processes or, you know, the tendency to, to you know, take on a different appearance or something like that?
1: Yeah, so so we know that mutation on its own is not a very strong evolutionary force. And, and the majority of mutations that are going to happen are either negative or like missense mutations and they don't actually change anything in our kind of protein production. But there are those times when mutation does confer these benefits. And so the idea is that if you are in an environment where we know we have a lot of um, chemicals that are mutagenic or could potentially be altering the DNA in individuals or their gametes, then you have a higher higher rate of mutation, higher mutation load. There's a higher probability that one of these mutations that confer like alternate coloration may occur. And because we also have higher densities of uh, wildlife in urban areas, oftentimes, um, it means that you're, you're kind of at a higher probability of those mutations taking hold in that population as well.
0: Does fragmentation play into that as well? So that, you know, if you happen to see one of these unusual color morphs, um, it would be more likely to become established because it's, you know, less likely to uh, evolutionarily fade to use an absolutely incorrect term?
1: Yeah, so I I think definitely that's, that's part of it too. And when we have this higher fragmentation, you also have higher drift. So just by chance, you know, those mutations could kind of get centered in those populations.
0: Okay, that, that's that's really fascinating. Um, so you know one of the other things that I was kind of um, curious about was um, the potential for there to be sort of this uh, domestication syndrome. Um, and I, you know I, I know that that's is that only hypothesized at this point or is that something established?
1: As far as I know, it's only
0: hypothesized. So, you know, what would that be? And and we can go back and, you know, uh, talk about some, I I think they're Russian foxes, are they? Um, But just, you know, just in general, what the syndrome is and how that might sort of affect species living in an urban environment.
1: Yeah, so the domestication syndrome is kind of a a suite of uh, uh, characteristics kind of determined mainly by this, this neural crest cells that end up lessening and you get if we take the the silver foxes and dogs in general, or canids, um, you kind of get these like shortening these features um, that are more puppy-like, these these rounder faces and floppy ears and curly tails and all these weird coat patterns and things like that. Um, and we also see kind of uh, coinciding changes in behavior and, and um, sociability in these animals. And so. Theoretically, I'll use coyotes as an example because I study them and it's the easiest one I think to kind of think about. Um, In an urban area, coyotes are probably selected for if they're somewhere along the continuum of slightly being more bold, but not too bold that they're getting into trouble. So able to deal with a lot of novel stimuli, but not so bold that, you know, they end up getting shot because they get in conflicts and things like that. Um, But there is a hypothesis that if we are kind of Pseudo-selecting for these more bold individuals, these ones that are able to be around people a little bit more, that were kind of inducing this kind of domestication syndrome, perhaps on accident. Um, and if you're you're linking these kind of um docility uh behaviors to and boldness at the same time, if you're linking those behaviors to uh, the physical traits that they sometimes coincide with, then perhaps we'll start seeing these kind of um Different coat colors coming up, like white tail tips and these like chest blazes and even brindling or or melanism within within different uh populations.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So you sort of start to see those, you know, traits that um, you know, may not be directly selected for kind of occurring potentially as a result of behavioral, you know, selection for certain behaviors
1: exactly
0: so i'm wondering now about uh predation we touched on it a little bit um but how does predation differ as a factor in selection um you know in an urban environment just generally speaking um and maybe drilling down into an example than it does in you know a place that's uh less affected by sort of human influences Say.
1: yeah i think this is kind of multifaceted but for one in, in urban areas, largely people have eradicated apex predators because they're a little bit difficult to, to live around when you have a bunch of people. And also, they're not that tolerant, usually, of kind of urbanization and the different things that that brings with it at a landscape level. Um, but we do tend to have larger amounts of mesopredators in urban areas. And so you'd think that predation rates would be pretty high, but because of a lot of anthropogenic subsidies and foods that we're, you know, leaving out that animals can access, predation rates tend to be lower in urban areas. And so we kind of have this human shield effect where we're kind of blocking large predators. And while we have a lot of mesopredators, these middle-sized predators, they're not necessarily actually taking advantage of all of the prey in these areas. And so in that way, you might release prey for being able to have these kind of narrow colorations that they would need to have in non-urban areas in order to avoid um, predators. And at the same time, you might release predators from having to, you know, conceal themselves from their prey. If they're no longer really needing to hunt and kind of conceal themselves if they're, you know, ambush predators or if they, you know, need any sort of camouflage to not, not be seen by their prey, you might release them from that constraint.
0: So i'm wondering you know in general do these effects um you know kind of are they are they interactive with each other uh, we've talked about a bunch of things that would be affecting you know the, the way that animals may present themselves um but do do all these factors kind of play off of each other or you know are they mostly operating in sort of an isolation
1: i mean i think everything operates together but how they operate is like pretty complex and i don't think we know quite yet on um, how they would interact with each other um and i think it's pretty hard to kind of speculate um what directionality a lot of these trends would have, especially when they start to interplay with each other. Um, So I guess that's just my call for, we should study this more because no one really knows.
0: I've never heard that before from a scientist. (laughs) Um, So I'm I'm wondering now uh, about the effects of climate change. You know, we are familiar with the urban heat island effect. We know it's a little bit warmer in urban areas. Do we expect to see more effects from a hotter climate and kind of do we have any reason to believe that they will be in one way or the other particularly?
1: Yeah, I think potentially. So, thermoregulation in endotherms, mammals mainly, that we're talking about here, is a little bit more complicated to understand in terms of coloration. We don't necessarily know how coloration affects thermoregulation totally. Um, there are some trends like Loger's rule, um, but we don't know it totally. So, sometimes in desert animals you get really dark-colored animals, as you know, to help with thermoregulation, but there's also really light-colored animals, so it's kind of a toss-up which way it would go. But theoretically, if any kind of coat coloration did confer thermoregulatory advantage in these urban areas, we could see that selected for. But depending on, you know, what that heat difference is and what the general environment is and these kind of other factors that might come into play, I think it would really vary which direction that color selection would go.
0: Okay. And you mentioned a, a rule there that, with which I'm not familiar. Is that uh, Gloker's rule? I think that's how you pronounce it, at least. Okay, yeah, uh, I have the But yet. yeah,
1: <laughs> the trend with that is just that in kind of more more humid uh, climates, we tend to have darker, more melanistic animals. Um,
0: so I, I think I'd like to talk about deer now, because um, I was I was really taken by the you know, I, and I've heard of this type of thing before um, among hunters, where really light colored or piebald deer or you know leucistic deer are not favored as, you know, kind of a hunting quarry for hunters. Um, And in some cases that's even enshrined in law.
1: Yeah, so there are laws across the United States, uh, depending on which state and which time period you're looking at, but um, we do have laws that protect white-tailed deer a lot of the time if they are leucistic or piebald, depending on the state, or totally albinistic. So it depends on the state, depends on what time period you're looking at, um, but there are still these laws in effect today some collaborators and I are actually writing a paper on kind of the human perceptions of animals with different colorations, so you can stay tuned for that. Um, but it's to me, it's really fascinating that, you know, depending on which color the animal is, right, we either provide protections for it, or it could actually incentivize people to hunt those animals as well. So there's a, a place in Texas, Texas that has a high level of melanistic white-tailed deer, and those are preferentially removed from the, the, those populations as trophies because they're they're considered more valuable.
0: Okay. And is there any actual conservation driven or ecological reason for these laws? Or, you know, does it just come down to pure human preference?
1: You know, if I were to guess, uh probably not. I think we just think they're cool um and we we're, they're novel. There's kind of this whole idea psychology of like scarcity and rarity that makes us value things that we don't see as often a little bit more. Um, But I'd imagine if it was ecologically valuable for these animals to be, you know, an extreme color, then we'd see it proliferate through the population. We often don't see that in, especially in non-urban areas, so I'd imagine it doesn't confer a lot of ecological advantage, at least.
0: Okay, and you know one of the things you discussed in this article um, that I've found really interesting is and something of course, that you've mentioned already uh, was is the relative paucity of research on these types of topics. Um, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and perhaps why we haven't seen more research in urban environments.
1: Yeah, I mean, urban ecology as a whole is a relatively nascent field. Um, I think for a really long time, biologists looked at these human dominated areas and were like, that's not nature. We don't need to study that. Um, but in my mind, I feel like it's the opposite, like, we are becoming a human-dominated area, right, we, there's no, there's no surface on Earth that's untouched by people, so understanding the way that, you know, wildlife and people can coexist and how, you know, our impacts impact wildlife on kind of a an interaction level, but also on the evolutionary level, is really fascinating to me, and I think is, really important in moving forward if we want to conserve wildlife and be able to live with them and understand the ways that we're changing wildlife, because inevitably we are. I think like probably the strongest, I don't know what the term I want to use for this is, but kind of evolutionary driver at this point is going to be human mechanisms.
0: Right. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, where you would direct that research if you were given, you know, say $10 billion or whatever amount of money. Um, I asked this question on occasion. It's just sort of the, you know, the research wish list. Um, what, what sorts of things would you like to see more research on that would kind of illuminate some of these issues?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, whew, that's a, that's a question. Um, from a personal standpoint, I feel like I'm really biased here. Um, I think it's all really interesting. Urban ecology is just so cool to me. Um, And I think it's, it's so nascent that we, there's so much that we don't know. And so if I were going to choose from a personal level, what I want to do for my postdoc at least is look at, um, kind of whole genome sequencing of coyotes as kind of a model species across urban rural gradients and see what genes might be selected for, what might be accidentally selected for, what kind of genetic drift is happening in different regions. And so I think having. If I had to say anything, we tend to think of cities as like, okay, you look at one, then you know the trend, and that's not true. So doing these kind of like very large approaches across large scales and many time periods, um, I think will illuminate the most valuable information.
0: Great. I think that is an excellent answer to a very unfair question. Uh, (laughs) Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.